Well, I think the theme is obvious, and they're great uh, songs and hymns and psalms to focus upon our exalted, risen Lord. In a moment, we're going to have our final hymn, but before that, there's just the detail of the sermon. Remember when we were in New Zealand and the Presbyterians didn't have a tradition of coming twice on a Sunday, and in the evening they had a small group, and I said, just said to them, um, it was good worship time, I said something like this, well, would you be disappointed if there was no sermon? And one of the elders said, of course we would, that's what you are here for, your sister. So, that was good, well, here's the sermon, even if you're not disappointed. There it is, a faithful son, that's what... Uh, uh, we have in, as we pursue our way through um, Hebrews uh, chapter 3. And uh, just to re- remind ourselves of the theme that comes out of this book increasingly, and, and this will be quite, become obvious um, as we work our way through the book of Hebrews. The, the, the great theme is this, that Christ is superior in his word. That's how the book begins. In many ways, at different times, in various circumstances, through different people, the law and the prophets and so forth, God has spoken through miracles and signs and wonders. But in this last day, he has spoken to us by his Son. Jesus is God's last word to us. So he is superior in his word. His word is his bond. He cannot break it. He is the Word made flesh living among us. By His Spirit, He is with us now. And then secondly, when we're thinking about this Jesus, who is presented in the book of Hebrews, that He is the Sovereign Lord. He is sovereign in His person, as we shall see in the course of this evening. And the great underlying theme is this third um, heading, really, is that this Jesus is sufficient. That when he proclaimed on the cross, it's finished once and for all. All the sacrificial system came to an end and found its completion in Jesus Christ. And he bowed his head and dismissed his spirit. And on the third day he rose again and he ascended to heaven and continues to pour out his spirit upon all flesh. He is sufficient in his sacrifice. So yes, there are words of the prophet. Yes, there are great people. And that was the point of the opening hymn. Join all the glorious names. The great prophets, as we shall see, like Moses and Abraham. Yes, but he is sovereign in his person. And all the sacrifices, he is sufficient. This is Jesus who comes to us in this book. And... uh, It's been written to people who became rather discouraged and began to think, well, this isn't what I expected when I came to faith and began to think that perhaps they should go back to their familiar routine uh, of, of the Jewish religion. And so the writer wants to encourage them not to go back, but to press on. And this theme comes out, doesn't it? Look to Jesus. Keep him in the focus of your mind. So, an outline, a very simple outline would be in chapter 3, verse 1, 
The first point would be the Messiah. That's the whole point of everything that we've been saying. The one spoken of has come. He's the Messiah. And so, the link, therefore, and I know I've used this term before, but when you, when you read that word, just ask yourself, what is it there for? Pause it, ask it as a question, not simply as a link. Well, what's gone before? Clearly, verse 18. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, in the light of who he is, what he has done, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, what are we to do? Fix our thoughts on Jesus. He's the Messiah. He's the Messiah. And then verses 2 to 6, Moses. Moses, the great prophet, through whom we have the Ten Commandments. The statesman, God's representative. And you have this uh, striking contrast in verses 2 to 6 between two powerful, mighty mediators. Moses was the mediator. Jesus is the mediator. Let's try to make this uh, striking contrast, just very briefly, so we, we don't need to return to this. Moses was part of the house, as you will read uh, these verses. But the Messiah was the architect, the builder, the one who constructed the house. Moses knew God personally, and we have accounts of that. And he mediates for God, for, between God and, and, his, and the rebellious people. But the Messiah was God permanently. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end, the first and the last. And the third contrast would be Moses was a servant in the house, as it says in these verses. The Messiah was the son, the heir appointed over the house. And you see, the, these themes are there to just remind us that there's no one, nothing like this Jesus. He is everything. Let's just try to get a bit more practical on this. You, you might say, well, there you are. Those are the three contrasts, and there, there would be more. How do these facts relate to me today? How are they going to relate to me tomorrow or this coming week? Well, look at verse... Six, and just to make the connection yourself, in the light of what has been said, uh, the builder and the house and Moses and so on. And then you have this, but Christ is faithful as a son over God's house and we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope with which we boast or with which we proclaim. Now the emphasis shifts in this last clause here. If we hold fast our confidence, if you like it, it says. What we mean by hold fast? Can I say what it doesn't suggest then? It's not suggesting that our salvation can be lost. We can lose what Christ has given to us. And sometimes people will struggle with that. Some people have held the view that to say once saved, always saved is presumptuous if you hold fast well what if I don't and how many of us have experienced times of doubting and questioning what he's really saying is this then that as we continue often alongside our doubts 
as we continue, it is the continuance that is the proof of our salvation. It is the proof of the reality that we are God's children. If you want to find proof of the reality of a person's faith, look at a person with the long look, not simply in the crisis and the dark periods, and see God at work, often in the doubts and the darkness. And then verses 7 to 19, you, we, we have, um, which is again much more application and it's very personal. Uh, we, 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 we can see this. Uh, today, verse 7, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. And this is a quote from Psalm 95, which came out of that period in which God's people failed and doubted and questioned and rebelled and resisted God's grace and the whole generation, 40 years, I was grieved with this generation. What is there to show of 40 years of religion? Nothing. Nothing. And it's a devastating indictment on a people who are so blessed. The application is very personal. So, if you hear his voice, and if God speaks to us tonight through his word, as we pray he will, well, what's our response? Don't harden your heart. Look at verse 8 as they did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert. And in case we haven't got that right, look at verse 15. As it's been said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, as in the rebellion. And God speaks to us. Don't resist him. So we, that's, that's the outline of the chapter. What, what we can do now with the rest of our time is just look at two things, two main headings. The first is this, Jesus is greater in the redemption that he gives. Moses is the redeemer that he was used to bring God's people out of Egypt. But there's a greater redemption, not only in time, but in eternity. And our final hymn, Guide Me O Thou Great Jehovah, takes this, takes this theme, as we shall see, and makes the connection. So what do we mean? So we have two points. First of all, Jesus is great in the redemption that he gives, verses 1 to 6. And you, you have, we've looked at this contrast between Jesus and Moses. It's so clear. In verse 5, Moses is a servant. Verse 6, Christ is the Son. Moses belongs to the house. Christ builds the house. It's the same thing. I'll build my church. I'll build a house now, it's interesting, in these verses here, if you were to count them, six times in these verses the term house, house is used. Now, it can be used in lots of ways. A good friend of ours, when he was diagnosed with, with cancer, and there's nothing they can do, the consultant, who almost becomes not a doctor but a priest, go home, put your house in order. What is he talking about? Go and decorate? Clearly not. Your house, your life. What are the things that you want to do with the time that you have left? So don't only think in terms of a building. Think about your life, your house, this dwelling where we live. Now, six times this term, the house, is used. And it's not so much referring to a, to a building, but to people. A people of God. It's like the church. And only Christ could say, I'll build my church. How am I going to do it? Not with bricks and mortar, 
but with, with redeemed people as I build them into living stones. Living stones. As we fit and dovetail together for His glory. And that is why meeting like this in our worship and, and being accountable and the issue of membership and baptism and so on is an integral part of our accountability to God in His Word and to one another. I'll build my church by the power of the Gospel and shape and change a people for His glory. So you see, verse 6 does need to be understood in that context as we were saying. The contrast of Christ as a deliverer, it is finished. It is finished. Moses, the great prophet, could only see the promised land. He never entered it. This Christ enters in to Canaan, the glory of heaven. And of course there are shadows, there are types and the substance and, and there's a great play in word, words in the book of Hebrews. And people who are so familiar with the Old Testament would make the immediate connection in a way perhaps we, it isn't too obvious to us. It's finished. Earth to heaven. Our confidence is in Christ. And so look at uh, one reference in chapter 4 and verse 16. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. Same theme again. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. So whatever our circumstances it might be difficult and grim and disappointing. Perhaps we're apprehensive about the future in terms of health or work or, or exams or so many things that impact our lives. Hold on. Hold on. And as we hold on to Him, we might be sure of this, He is holding on to us. He's holding on to us. That's our confidence. That's our courage. And in this house, you are safe and you are saved in this house. And it's a powerful thing, isn't it? Coming with confidence. Wesley, Charles Wesley, although it was his conversion hymn, brings so much out of this. You make the connection. Bold I approach. I come with confidence. The eternal throne. And claim the crown through Christ my own. No condemnation now I dread. Do you see that? Coming with confidence. Not because we've kept, uh, kept up the rules and been good and have worked our way up the ladder of faith. No, he's come to us and we have been receptive to him. Jesus is greater in the redemption that he gives. But secondly, Jesus is greater in the rest that he provides. And again, this is the theme that's repeated. When, when you go home, just read uh, ch chapter 3 again. See if the frequency of this word rest, rest. Verses 17 to 19. This is our second um, heading. Now this long section sends warning signals. It rings, the toll of the bell is rung clearly and loudly. Danger signals. There's dangers for the, the, the believer from drifting 
Just whether it's our church life or our married life or our work, just going through the motions. And we just drift. Or doubt becomes such a, a, a part of our, our lives and we think that prayer, well, got better things to do or we find it hard to concentrate. And cumulatively, not just one event, there is a hardening, a hardening. The same lovely sun that gives life, all sun gives a desert. And the ravages of our experience can sometimes harden us. Instead of us being receptive and fruitful, we become indifferent and harsh. Perhaps in the way we talk to each other, the things that we expect from one another, the way that we criticize each other. And so Psalm 95, although it's, it, I think we should turn to this just very quickly because this is what's quoted so many times here. Psalm 95, you know it's the, it's the hymn, a traditional hymn of praise to open worship. The part that's left out is the one that the Hebrew writer makes most of. You see, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let's come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. We've been doing that. That's good. And then you get, this isn't in the songs, is it, so much? Today, if you hear His voice, verse 8, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did at Massa, in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me. Though they had seen what I did, they saw, they saw the Red Sea, Open up. They saw God bring redemption from Egypt. They saw Moses as the prophet. They saw the law being given. And what happened? They saw what I did, yet for 40 years I was angry with this generation. I said, there are people whose hearts go astray and they have not known my ways. So I declare on oath, God says, they will never enter my rest. Rest very precious word. The rest of the weary is sweet. And it isn't just going to sleep. It's having a settled peace that your life is in God's hands. You rest in Him. And Psalm 95 looks back to that wilderness experience. What do we mean by rest then? It means this, to cease from striving. And resisting, pulling back and chaffing against the yoke of discipleship as Christian people. So the Psalms are full of this. Be still and know that I am God. Be still. It doesn't say be still and believe. Be still and know. He's talking to a people, a covenant people. And the Old Testament reference of Canaan, for instance, and there's so many shadows and types and substance here. We wouldn't have time to think about all of them. But the reference to Canaan, as we shall see um, in our final hymn. And I've often used this, you know, for um, people who are nearing the end of their earthly life. And uh, you say to people, you know that great hymn, over 200 years old. You know what it says? When I tread the verge of Jordan. I've not been there before. That's, a, that's uncharted territory for me. Isn't it true for all of us? Bid my anxious fears subside. 
the hymn writer uses that as a picture crossing over from, from, from this world to the next. And that's poetic as well. It's the idea of crossing the Jordan, a picture, a picture of death, but a picture of Canaan, the land flowing with milk and honey and all of that. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this weary land. Make then, as we come to a, a conclusion now, make the connection. You do it. I'll try to help you do it so that you work hard as I speak. Make the connection with rest. Enter into a new rest. A new assurance. A new confidence. Less striving. Less chaffing against the yoke of Jesus. How do we do this? Well, look again in, in the chapter. Verse 11 is not very... Dis it's somewhat discouraging, isn't it? It's a, it's a quote from Psalm 95. So I declare on oath in my anger they shall never enter my rest. God's providing it. They've missed the blessing. They've missed it. And look at verse 18. And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest if not to those who disobeyed? It isn't a disobedience that uh, could be justified. They knew God's ways and they turned their back on God. So, the conclusion of the chapter, we see that they were not able to enter not able to enter rest. Their unbelief had cancelled it. Separated them from the covenant God. Just stay with that and look in chapter 4. Look at chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, what is it therefore? It's there to help us to enter the rest. Since the promise of entering this rest, you see there's the word again, still stands. What are we going to do? Let us, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. And then you have it again in verse 3. So I declared an oath in my anger, they will never enter my rest. And the writer's preoccupied, almost, I was going to say almost paranoid. The rest, the rest. Why are you missing out on this rest? Is your Christian life a case of just doing what you can, surviving every week. Where is this rest, this blessing of the Lord? Is it an alien thing? Is it wishful thinking? Is it so far from us? Ten times. He's, you know, it's not vain repetition, but he's really pushing it, isn't he? Read it. If you, if you use your Bible, put a little highlight. Say, rest, rest, rest. Enter the rest, people of God. Enter your rest. Don't strive. We could put these ten references and there are two main meanings. The first is this, the Sabbath rest. You know from the book of Genesis, God ceased from his creative work. There is an, an, there is an erosion of God's day. It's no different to any other day. 
And then there's an erosion of God's word. Well, it's like other words, but. And an erosion of God's people. But this is a restoration of the distinctive of a Sabbath. A rest for our souls. And it's more than just going to church. It's entering into the blessing of God. Cease. If, 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 the, if the creator of the universe ceased from work, how much more should we? And the ravages and the barrenness of over-busy lives that we're afraid to stop, it's easier just to keep going. Stand back. Wait. Be still. Take rest. Sabbath rest. And uh, it's, it's a picture of our rest in Jesus Christ. Do you remember the way that Jesus put it? I, I, I wonder if he was thinking about this. And speaking to his disciples, he says this. Come to me. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. It's not a siesta. It's rest. And Jesus goes on to say this. Take my yoke upon you. Rest and work. There isn't a conflict here. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And this is the point. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And now then, this is it. This is it. And you'll find rest for your souls. Soul rest. Rest for your spirit in the weariness of life. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's a very precious thing. And finally, in the second reference here to rest is Israel's rest in Canaan. This idea of entering the rest, which they missed out on so badly. Israel's rest in Canaan, the reference there as you have it in um, verse 11, which they, they failed to take, takes you back to Deuteronomy and Joshua. It is an illustration of the spiritual experiences of believing people that we find rest for our souls. We find rest for our souls. Canaan, the Canaan rest, if you like, is a picture of our present rest as we claim our inheritance in Jesus Christ. Put it like this then. If the first rest of the Sabbath that we find rest in him is one of salvation. He's provided it. The second one then is this of submission. I submit to his word. Today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Submit to his word. Take it. Take it personally. It's meant to be. You know sometimes you're in conversation with people and you're talking and you say, oh don't take it personally. Please, do take it personally. You will find rest for your soul. If you hear my voice, don't harden your heart. Take it personally. Just one last reference in chapter 4 and verse 9. Look, it says this. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. A Sabbath 
rest for the people of God. And we would do well to enjoy that, to take refuge. And, and even though duty is, is a powerful thing, yet let delight be even more powerful, whatever our commitments. And we close with three practical lessons. The first is this, and, and, and the whole point of chapter 3 is to do with God testing his people. Tests, why do they come? Why do they come? They come to soften our hearts, not to harden them. Don't harden your heart during the testing, whether it's health or finance or family troubles or difficulties in the church or misunderstandings, tests. They come to make us more receptive, less rebellious. Do you see it? Soften our hearts, not to harden them. That's why. And what about this word rest? It means, I accept God's will, not mine. That's the, perhaps the most powerful, pivotal moment in the life of Jesus, praying in Gethsemane. Not what I want. What I want, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but your will. That's a rest. Even in the struggle, the ferment of life, I accept God's will, not mine. And the conclusion is for us that when resting and testing combine, they dovetail together, human striving begins to stop and begins to cease. And the blessing of God begins to flow And not only are we people who receive blessing, but perhaps even unknown, we become channels of his blessing to others, part of God's house, God's rest, God's people. Jesus is a faithful son.